Good morning, everybody. So I saw this, this, I'm pretty sure it was a meme. I had written it down. I can't remember how to attribute this, but it, it said, at 20, I couldn't wait to get on the road. At 30, I learned how to go from zero to 60 in eight seconds. At 40, I found that I'd been holding the map upside down. And at 50, I discovered I had the wrong map altogether. And that's honestly the story of the way things go in, in this world. I think that most people relate to that as we go through life and we get older and we mature and we begin to process things differently and look at life differently and understand the world around us differently. And I, I, I think that's one of those things that happens in any culture at any time uh, in the history of this world. When I was growing up, we were told, you know, get up early, work hard, climb to the top, stand on people's necks if you have to, look out for number one, just do it. And then I have this encounter with Jesus in my life and his up, upside down kingdom. And to my dismay, I find that the map had been upside down all along, that what I was really looking for was in the exact opposite direction of of what I'd been told my whole life. We're going to consider that that opposite direction as we keep going in our study in the Gospel of Luke today. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, and if you'd like to follow along, if you'll go to Luke chapter 18, please. We are in the last section of Luke's travel narrative. Remember, this is uh, unique to Luke's gospel, where we're reading about Jesus' journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He's with a group of pilgrims, and they're, they're heading down to Jerusalem to celebrate the annual Passover. This will be Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem during his earthly ministry. Last week, we read a familiar parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector who had gone to the temple to pray. We considered some important ideas about God's grace in that lesson and our need for that grace. And all through this chapter, we've been learning about the values of God's kingdom. God's kingdom moving into this world. God's kingdom, he told the Pharisees, already present and at work. And and so through so many stories and teachings and sayings and miracles, Jesus is trying to to express to us what God's kingdom is, is like. And in the section that we're going to read today, we're going to read about two encounters that Jesus has that show very different values in God's kingdom as compared to the values of this broken world that we live in. One of the consistent and repetitive themes of the gospel is that Jesus' presentation of God's kingdom, as far as kingdoms go, is very different from our notions of kingdom or the way that kingdoms work, whether it's the leaders of Israel and the kingdom of Israel or whether it's Caesar on his throne or we could expand that out and say any leaders in any government anywhere. What Jesus presented and modeled was quite different from what people were expecting when God's kingdom was going to arrive, when God's will is done on earth like it's done in heaven. And this, of course, then becomes the calling of the church to live these same kinds of values out, to live this upside-downness out in the lives that we live and understanding ourselves and how it is that we relate to the people around us. This is what Jesus means when he talks about entering the kingdom. Talks Many times throughout the Gospel of Luke or the other Gospels, Jesus refers to entering into the kingdom of God. What we, you know, we're called to enter in 
to that kingdom. And we usually relegate a phrase like that, entering into the kingdom of God, to going to heaven when we die. Well, one day I'm going to you know, pass through those gates. I'm going to enter into heaven. But that's, that's actually one small aspect of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus told us earlier in chapter 17 that the kingdom of God is already present at work in this world through Christ and now through us, the church, his followers. We are the representatives of Christ's in-breaking kingdom. So entering the kingdom means participating in the advance of God's ways in this world. Anyway, that's what we're going to be considering today. So if you're there in Luke chapter 18, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 15. It says, One day, some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. So there's this concept again. And I'm sure we're all very familiar with the image of Jesus blessing the, the little children. It's a favorite with artists. I'm no exception because it's just, a, it's a, it's a lovely picture. But here's the thing. It's a picture that runs the risk of being overly romanticized. I mean, because we love the image of Jesus, you know, condescending and being with the children, and rightly so. Uh, but this is more than Jesus putting his stamp of approval on, on kids' church ministry. Well, I mean, it is that. I mean, it is that, because it's certainly, you know, we have a clear mandate for the church to look after the children. And, and you know, that's why the, 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 the kids' church ministry at any given church, and I believe here at Eastgate, is a vitally important thing. We've talked before about needing people to get involved in that and certainly encourage that because to me, you know, someone will say, man, I want to get involved in ministry. I want to do something. I want to do something for the kingdom. I want to, you know, be out sharing Jesus. Listen, the, the leading edge, the cutting edge of our outreach ministry happens over there in the children's church. This is if, if you go statistically about how it is people encounter Christ and, and what stage in their life, the majority of people will say that they, it was an encounter that they had during those formative years when they were in, in a kid's church uh, context. So it's an important thing. We want to get involved in ministry. That's a great place to start. But uh, I, I just, I, that's my plug for church, uh, for kid's church. But there's more going on here than just a sweet image of Jesus being nice to children. We've talked before about the ancient world's perspective of of children uh, and their attitude towards it. Remember, children in that context, and this is true for the Jewish world, this was true for the Roman Greco world, children were people, uh, well, were not considered people with rights. In fact, they weren't even given male-female designations until they reached a certain age, you know, 12 to 13 years, uh, they were referred to as it before that because they were fairly dehumanized at, at that point. The disciples were not mean guys who, you know, hated kids and dogs or stuff like that. They were doing what would have been considered the right thing to do uh, in this situation. For most devout people, they would have thought, well, finally, the disciples stepped in here and brought order. You know, they felt like children should be seen and not heard, and they certainly shouldn't be interrupting Jesus while he's busy doing Messiah stuff in this world. The disciples were trying to restore the normal order as they understood it. 
They were operating by the values that had already been established. Children, don't do this. Get away from here. But Jesus, as he consistently does, upends those values and ends up rebuking the disciples for interfering with what he wants to do, to give personhood status to these children. And then he says, the kingdom of God belongs to them or to those who are like them. In other words, this is what the kingdom of God is like. God's kingdom attributes value to those that the world dismisses as unimportant or unworthy or as non-contributing. And I believe the lesson to us is obvious that regardless of how the world assesses our worth, Jesus turns the world upside down to let us know that we enter the kingdom by finding our status and our identity secured in Christ's love for us. That's where we draw our sense of personhood from. That's where we draw our sense of identity. As human beings, and this is just a reality of human nature since the fall, we are inordinately preoccupied with other people's assessments of ourselves, of our worth especially. There are whole fields of psychological study and research that's happening now to try to understand the effects of social media and how it drives our need for affirmation. Because we know, we've seen it now for however long social media has been around, 10 to 15 years, people live and literally die for those little blue thumbs or those Instagram hearts or I have no idea what taco, tic-tac taco has. I don't know what they've got. But but we want so desperately to be liked and to be validated as, as somehow valuable or meaningful as human beings, to, to have a social status that affirms us. And listen, that's nothing new. Well, you know, it, it might be inflated because we've devised new technology that gratifies that urge more quickly. But as humans, it's always been there. That's always been there. That need, that desire has always been what we wanted to be affirmed. Jesus uses the imagery of children to get across this important truth. Society's view of us has no bearing on God's unthinkable love for you, for us. The purpose of this is to set us free from the bondage of seeking human approval for our sense of worth. If we know that we're loved by God, we can then be free to love others, no matter who they are. And we can be free to follow God's purposes for our lives without limitation. That means our goal as Christians, as the church, is not to try to impress people. It's just not part of it. it. You know, it's not to try to get people to think that, hey, we're cool and relevant enough for you to join in with us. Jesus never gave us command saying, hey, don't embarrass me and at least try to look like a, an influencer on social media. The fact is gaining a favorable status is just not on God's agenda. If it were, Jesus would have operated a whole lot differently than he did. Always seeking approval of our peers can actually be detrimental. We know that just even on a purely psychological level, but it can be very detrimental to our spiritual health. In fact, speaking to this idea more directly, back in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, what sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? I mean, that's pretty blunt. 
and it's the opposite of what society promotes. I mean, our society, especially in this media-driven age, I mean, I mean, there's no such thing as a, a great show called, you know, American Reject. It's American Idol. Everybody wants to be known and famous and loved and, and adored. But Jesus is trying to get across this important truth that goes to the core of who we are as human beings. Our value and worth is not dependent on what our social, political, or economic status may be. We are valuable because God values us in his love. God loves us. It's, uh, uh, and that's all that we need to know when it comes to establishing a stable sense of identity. You are loved by God. You are loved by the one who created you. That's who you are. Who are you? You are loved by God. If you can know that, if you can do the work of believing that, it can change everything. It certainly changed everything for me. But that also means, on the other side of that, that we're not permitted the luxury of determining who else is valuable or not. God loves all people, and he doesn't use our sensibilities to determine someone else's worth. And so we need to disavow the habit that our culture ingrains in us, disavow the habit of trying to determine the merit or worth uh, of another human being and be willing to err on the side of love. Because that's where God is, on the side of love. Love them all. Love them all and let God sort it out. That's a better phrase all the way around. Now, Luke places another story right next to that vignette, one that interlocks with this theme of entering into the kingdom by upending the values of this world. So let's pick this back up. Verse 18, we've got this next encounter. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal. Did I say internal? Eternal life. Verse 19, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I have obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard this answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Remember, enter the kingdom of God, what that means. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, heavy stuff. Uh, right away, we need to get a picture of this guy who's coming to Jesus. We know from this text, he's a religious leader, he's, he's well off. We know from Matthew's account of this same event that he was a young man. And for a young man to have achieved this, this level of status, you know, of leadership and respect 
in the culture, that, you know, that's quite an accomplishment for him. So he's young, he's powerful, he's well off, he's everything that any culture, including our, our culture today, would consider successful. You know, this is a successful dude. More than that, because of his testimony of keeping the law, we have to assume that he didn't come by that wealth through some unscrupulous means. Uh, he was someone who obviously took the law seriously, as he said, from the time that he was little. So he's young, he's wealthy, he's powerful, and he's an upright moral citizen. I mean, you couldn't imagine a more successful picture of what everybody wants in this world. I, you know, I want to make it. I want to be admired. I want to be respected. I want to have a lot of money. I want to be a good person. I mean, this seems like everything. It's what everyone would assign as God's blessing on this individual. He comes to Jesus and he calls Jesus a good teacher. And curiously, Jesus corrects that. He says, you know, why are you calling me good? Now, we got to think about that for a minute. What, what are you trying to say, Jesus? It, it, it's, it's not that Jesus is trying to imply that he himself is not good. What he's getting across is this guy doesn't know him well enough to make that sort of an assessment of him. You've just encountered me. How is it that you're saying this about me? Almost indicating a level of flattery in, in, in that. He asks Jesus about what good work he needed to do in order to inherit a whole and unending life. And that's the idea behind eternal life. Again, let's get out of the habit of thinking heaven when we die. Uh, eternal life is something that begins in this life, even for the ancient Israelites. That's what they saw it as. A life that is whole and complete and extends on into eternity. So this was a common question that would be posed to rabbis regularly. What do I need to do to inherit the, you know, the good life? What do I need to do to, to be in sync with God's purposes for my life? And, and so Jesus gives the expected answer. Keep the commands. What, what every good rabbi would say to a nice Jewish person who comes up, uh, you know, keep the commands of Moses is what he's saying. And the young man, he's ready for that. And he goes, ha ha, I do that. Probably hoping, you know, for some affirmation, like we were talking about before. So Jesus adds one more thing onto it, and it's a powerful one. Sell what you have and give it to the poor and gain a different kind of treasure and come follow me. So keeping the thematic context in mind, that of upending the values of this broken world, we see that Jesus is trying to communicate something to this rich leader here. First of all, the most obvious thing he's telling him and us is that contrary to the world's ideas that money and possession are what provide us our sense of security and well-being in this world, Jesus is letting this young man know, and us as well, that we're going to enter the kingdom when we find our security in God's plans and purposes, not in the things that we can accomplish or not even in the things that we can acquire and put around us. And this is something... You know, this is not new for you to hear this from me, but this is something that we have to face squarely as 21st century American Christians. The Bible has a lot of challenging things to say about wealth and being rich, and especially about the, the, the goal of gaining wealth. Jesus says quite plainly that it's hard for a rich person to enter into God's kingdom, that is, to submit to his reign over their life. Uh, and, and, and this vignette acts that out for us. 
He uses the hyperbole, picturing a, a gangly camel trying to squeeze through the tiny eye of a, a needle, trying to explain to us how difficult this is. Why? Well, because over and over again in the Bible, we're warned that riches can be a snare, that wealth, that money can be a snare. They, they promise security and happiness that they never deliver on. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says that a person who loves silver will never be satisfied with silver. And we've seen that play out over and over again in life. Jesus warned us back in chapter 16, we can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and money. One or the other is going to get our attention and our loyalty, our full allegiance. First Timothy 6 warns us that, do I have it on here? Yeah. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, and that's the qualifier, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. I feel like I'd like to go off on a preachers and sneakers kind of rant, but I'm not going to. But, but, but how can we live in a world with a church that has a website like preachers and sneakers when this is in the Bible? Calm down, Rob, but I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. And part of it, sends chills down my spine when he says, wandered from the true faith because they loved money. Calm down, Rob. I am, I am. None of this is to say, none of this is to say that a person can't have money and be a Christian. Jesus did not say that a person who has wealth can't enter into the kingdom of God. He never says that. It's not a forbiddance all the way around, but he's plainly declaring what our world always wants to conceal, and that is that money is a dangerous drug. Every bit as dangerous as that opioid that's infecting the the people in the society around us. If a person has it, it has to be dealt with like a harmful narcotic. It has to be dealt with carefully, respectfully, prayerfully. But balanced with, with all of that warnings, we also know that there are people of means who followed Jesus. There were people who were patrons of his ministry. It enabled him to be able to do the ministry that he did. We're, many of them are named Joanna and Herod's business manager, Susanna. And later there's Barnabas and, and Lydia and Aquila and Priscilla. They were people of means who weren't given any specific command by God or directly through Jesus to that Jesus gave to this guy to sell everything. In the next chapter, we're going to read about a tax collector named Zacchaeus, who on his own accord says, I'll give back you know, half of everything that I've taken. Well, there he got away with half. <laughs> and Jesus never says anything to the guy. I love that whole thing. We'll get to that later. But uh, So this was not a, a blanket command that Jesus was giving. It was tailored directly to this man's needs. Jesus was getting a point across, and it's a point that we as modern Westerners, Americans specifically, we need to pay attention to. Our source of security and well-being must not be anchored in money 
our accumulation of it or our lack of it. True security, just like our sense of true value, is found in God, in Him alone, in His purposes, in, in the belief that there is something unfolding here, even beyond our perception. And there's a good test that we can do to determine how much control we've given to money when it comes to our sense of security. Like if we've got a lot of money in the bank, if there's a lot there and we can look at it and see it regularly, how does it affect our emotions? Are we upbeat at that point? Do we get glad and pretty stoked doing our little happy money dance through the house because we got what we need? What about if we have nothing? What about if we're looking at it and thinking, I'm not even sure how the bills get paid. (laughs) How how am I going to afford gas now? How does that affect our emotional state? Does that get us down? Are we... You know, downcast and life is a drag. No, I don't have any money. That's a simple way to test ourselves, to discover how much power over our lives that we've given over to money. Jesus calls us to a different kind of treasure, one that doesn't get rusted, one that doesn't rot, one that can last forever, and it's located in Christ's purposes alone in finding our sense of security in the trust and belief, whether we understand what's going on or not, the trust and belief that God is good and that God is unfolding something in this world and we get to be part of it. God's love for us is the source of our security. With that, man, we can have a little or a lot of money. It makes no difference to our sense of security. Well, listen, that's not something that happens overnight. I'm not saying, okay, now get on it or whatever. This this is something that we remind ourselves of because as humans, we're going to fall into these emotional states. We're going to be all over the map in, in our lives. But maybe in those moments when we're tempted to feel so downcast and hopeless because of money or when we're tempted to make decisions that we know are not cooperative with God's purposes, his value, his ethics... Well, we can remind ourselves, well, money doesn't play that kind of role in my life. Someone else claims that place of loyalty in my life. All right. Well, like I said, this is hard stuff to hear. It got everybody's attention in in this story, too. Everybody freaks out. Verse 26. Those who heard this said, well, then who in the world can be saved? And he replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. Now, this is important because the rich man asked how to inherit eternal life. And we said that has to do with how we're living now, but it does extend on to eternity. So it does carry with it the ideas that we hold to when it comes to a sense of salvation. And so this guy lists all the stuff off that he did well, and Jesus offered one more thing for him to do. And, of course, that was a bridge too far. He wasn't going to go to there. But here we have another reminder about the nature of God's kingdom. It's impossible for us as human beings to earn our way, to do enough to make that happen. Those possibilities all rest with God. So we enter the kingdom by accepting and trusting in God's freely given grace. And we've covered this extensively before. We covered it a lot last week. I'm not going to belabor the point, but even though Jesus provided the rich guy a test to see what he was willing to do, how far he'd be willing to go, in in following Jesus. He wasn't challenging him with something that he could do to earn his place with God. That's why he even 
brings up, how is it that you're calling me good? Where do you think you have these qualifications? We often use this verse, you know, what's impossible with man is possible with God. We often use this to try to encourage ourselves when we're in difficult situations. You know, with God, all things are possible. And, you know, it's a good thing to remember, but let's not forget the context because he's talking about our reconciliation with God, our, our salvation. It is impossible for us, but it's possible for God to provide. What's impossible for fallen human beings to do, to be able to do enough that's right, that offsets the wrong, to do enough where we feel sufficiently cleansed and justified before a holy God. God does for us through Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Something we remind ourselves weekly, that monthly we celebrate the communion, one of those things to remind ourselves this is all based on God's love for us. And that just invites us off the, the treadmill of religious works to try to earn our place with God. We can embrace by faith a sacrificial love for us that meets us right where we are. It's not about us trying to conform to do something, to be something, to achieve something, but about a love, accepting a love for us that meets us right where we are. With God, all of it is possible. We can go through all the reasons why we think, you know, we've done enough bad that God's never going to believe it. Hey, with God, all things are possible. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about what we've done or not done. With God, it's possible. And that's where we put our faith. That's how we're entering into the kingdom. And again, I can point you to last week's teaching or a multitude of others where we've talked about that. We'll keep going here. Verse 28. Peter said, well, we left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus. I love Peter. Uh, yeah, um, Jesus. <laughs> Since you're on the subject here, we uh, did this. Uh, uh, Jesus, yes. Jesus replied, yes, Peter. And I assure you that everyone who's given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. Okay. This is a tricky part of the passage. It's a very, you know, encouraging kind of thing to hear. Oh, yay. But, but people have gone into some strange territories with this. Some have interpreted this to mean that if we've given up something for God, then he's going to provide it back to us, multiply it over. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying uh, right there. So a preacher will say, you know, if you give a thousand dollars to my ministry, God is now obligated based on what Jesus said here, to return that investment for you and you'll get, you know, $10,000 back or whatever his thing is. But you got to have faith. <laughs> so when it doesn't happen, it's your fault. But uh, so uh, there are obvious difficulties with, with trying to take this and say, yes, he is literally saying he's going to give all these things back one-to-one in this life. Uh, the underlying greed implied in that notwithstanding, but saying that these will be multiplied back to us literally is problematic because then he is literally promising many wives, uh, many parents, and uh, I don't know, unless you're part of one religion out west, that gets really uncomfortable uh, to think about. You know, I had to leave my wife. Well, I'll give you ten wives in return. Uh, I, I can't agree with that. I, uh, there, there's, there's way too much weight uh, on the idea and the, the holiness of that, that one-to-one relationship. I don't agree with that. So that interpretation is problematic. I believe he's talking about how if we follow him, that is, we enter into this kingdom, we take up these upside-down values of the kingdom as our own, then our center 
gets rearranged and these things or these lack of things no longer become an end in itself. In other words, whether we have these things or not actually isn't the thing that informs us as to our sense of well-being, stability, and wholeness in this life. That comes from somewhere else, something else that's God, that God has provided. We're no longer defined by what we have or don't have, even when it comes to relationships. We could say that we enter the kingdom of God when we're content with what God has supplied for us. What did I do here? Did I not change that before? Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, that's why you got to bring your own Bible, because I'm an idiot. Okay, so uh, this is great value. I mean, this whole idea that of being content, this is something that Paul elaborates on in 1 Timothy 6. True godliness with contentment is in itself great wealth. I mean, when you think of the terms that, in terms of what it is that we could long for and want, I mean, contentment. What I mean, contentment is huge. I don't think we put nearly enough uh, emphasis on that in life and finding contentment. We're always trying to find that thing, that person, that job, that whatever. That'll, we assume that the thing or the person or the job is where the contentment is. But the contentment's separate from all of those things. This is what's trying to get across to us. Contentment can be found. It can be found, but not in these things. We can find contentment in what God has provided for us. And I do think, though, that it's interesting that when he makes this promise of provision, he does actually couch it in the in, in terminology of family. He didn't actually say, I'll give you, I'll make sure you get horses and cows and, and things like that. I'm thinking agrarian stuff for an agrarian culture. It, you know, it didn't say cars or cash or anything like that. He talked about relational things. And honestly... I think that's what's really beautiful here. Peter declares that he and his disciples, that he and the other disciples were willing to give up their meager homes that they had as fisher people to go and follow Jesus. And Jesus promises to provide them family in return. And that's really what God does provide us. I mean, ultimately, that's a great gift that God's given us. The church becomes a place where where new brothers and sisters provide encouragement and emotional support and even practical forms of support. We see this in action whenever the church community rallies to a family's needs or comes to support a family in a time of crisis. I think about the, the support that we drew from each other in the aftermath of Michael, how important that was for us and how beautiful it was for us to, we weren't even able to get back in this building. We're all just hanging out here in the courtyard. But for me, just, I longed for that time. We get together. We get to see each other. We have that sense of support. Hey, I'm still working on trying to get this. Oh, well, let's see what we can do to get over there to help. I mean, that, that deep interconnection that we felt in that time, that was a, you know, it's a weird thing to say, but in so many ways, Michael was a gift to us to give us a, a glimpse of what the world could be like and to give us a glimpse of what the world really is like, except we've got this veneer over it that keeps us from seeing what it's really like. When, when we love each other like family, when we don't take what God has provided for us, uh, for granted and, and, and we, 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 we love and support each other as a church community. This life of following Jesus actually becomes easier in that sense. I know that a lot of times people will say, I'm, I'm done with church, and I get it, man. I totally, totally get it. Church is a dangerous place, and I'm, and I'm not trying to minimize people's experiences in that. But, but if we can see the benefits of it and mutually commit 
to, to, to seeing those benefits implemented in each other's lives. Not just trying to build our own little kingdom here, but, but build a community that supports and cares for one another uh, on earth like it's done in heaven. I mean, there's great benefit in that sort of thing. To, to go off on our own and say, you know, I'm just going to follow Jesus on my own. I, I go to, I have church at the beach or whatever. And, and, and I'm not trying to denigrate anybody's experiences of the holy or divine presence in those contexts. But church is community. There's no way around that. It's about, you know, learning to lay our lives down for one another. It's about learning how to interact and, 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 and gel together, even with all the various differences and personalities and understandings of how the world works, with the commonality being God and His love for us expressed to us through Jesus. I mean, I don't know. It's still, after all these years, in my mind, there's still this ideal that I think that can be achieved, that I think that we can do as a community to, to love each other and to care for each other and, and not make it about the, the ancillary things that so often become divisive or abusive in the process. Um, okay, I'm rambling. I don't even know where I am. I'm so sorry. So, okay, so, so this section then is touching on our social, our financial, our religious moorings, and all of it boils down to our willingness to let go of this broken world's system and, and, and trust in God's purposes for our lives. Society can't determine our values. God's love is the only thing that determines our worth. God loves us all. Our wealth or our lack of it doesn't determine our value or our state of security and blessing. In fact, you know, it's a, it can be a deterrent if we make that our goal. Our security in life rests on God's love for us and our religious efforts don't determine our place with God. His love for us provides salvation. So our challenge is, and here's what you take away, to believe that. To believe it. To believe in his love for you. (laughs) If I had something more than words, I'd use them. But all I got is words. To believe in his love for you and find security in that and build an identity around that. That, I think, can be world-changing. So let's enter in. Let's participate with this upside-down world that Jesus presents to us and find our place in that love. That's what changes the world. Right on? All right. Thank you for letting me ramble like this. Father, we just ask you to to bless this word to our hearts. And we thank you, Lord. I don't know that we could ever... I don't know that we could ever express it enough. Our gratitude to you for your love for us. Because I certainly know for myself, Lord, I bring nothing to the table here. There's nothing that I could do that could earn... This, this place of security, the knowledge that no matter what happens in this life, wherever I fall, I fall into your love. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Father, the revelation of that is imparted to every heart that's here. You by your spirit, Lord, that's how that's got to be communicated, by your spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and open up hearts and minds to receive this amazing life-altering truth of your boundless love, the abyss of that love. Father, uh, draw us in to the activities of your kingdom at work in this world. 
It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. And your love gives us value. So guide us and lead us into that kind of life. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand with us, please. We'll close with a song. We thank you, Lord, for that victory we have in you. That when we talk about things, Lord, about about releasing the the values of this world, we're not talking about a life that is not that is not sustained and uplifted by the victory that we find in you. And we thank you for that victory that is at always at work in our lives and in our hearts. So continue that good work among your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, let's, uh, we'll speak this blessing on each other uh, before we bail out of here. If you need prayer for anything, come on up. There will be people that would love to pray with you. We can know it with you with oil and see what God will do in the process. But let's speak this together. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be over you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you on your left and on your right both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.